it was a small town, one of those places where everybody knows everybody else. So when something bad happened, the whole community was traumatized. But there was this sweet Christian lady who saved the day. And she did it in such a simple way with a simple display of grace. Here's how the trouble got started. There was a young man by the name of Eli. He was an active member of the local church, and everybody in town liked him. But one afternoon, Eli pulled into the local gas station, and while he's trying to pump some gas, he got involved in an altercation. There was an elderly man hanging around the gas station that day, and he had been drinking too much. And in his drunken state, he tried to pick a fight with Eli. Eli said, I, you know, I don't know why I didn't just get in the car and drive away. I've been fussed at and cussed at many times before, and it never lost my cool. But boy, that day, there was just something about that old man that kind of got under my skin. I mean, the old man wouldn't let up. He kept jabbing me with his finger and, and swearing at me with every obscenity in the book. And finally, I couldn't take it anymore. I said, just get away. And I just kind of pushed him. It wasn't real hard. I just pushed him. But because the man was drunk, he didn't have any kind of balance or stability. So when he fell, he fell pretty hard. And when he fell, he hit his head on the concrete, and he died instantly. Soon, everybody in town knew, and everybody was talking about it, and everybody in town began to pick, up, pick, on, uh, pick a side. And pretty much everybody in town had decided against Eli, that Eli was all wrong. Eli had overreacted. Yeah, the man was drunk, but Eli didn't need to push him. So this is all Eli's fault, and Eli needs to pay. So now there was a lot of tension in the air. Eli called his preacher and he said, hey, I, I need your help. I, I want to see the widow. I, I want to go see this man's wife and apologize. Would you come along with me? I understand if you don't want to do this. I understand if you don't want to be seen with me. I'm not a very popular guy in this town right now, but, but I really need to see this man's wife. I want her to know how sorry I am. And I just figured if you came along with me, maybe that might help the situation. The preacher said, I'd love to come along, Eli. Let's do it. So that afternoon, Eli and the preacher, they pulled up to the home, and it seemed like everybody was there. I mean, all kinds of people sitting in the front porch, all kinds of people standing around the front yard. It seemed like everybody in the town had come out to comfort the widow. So when Eli and the preacher pulled up to the house that day, everybody turned and stared and just glared at them in anger. And Eli was scared to death, but he knew he needed to talk to the widow. Well, he was barely five feet out of the car when the widow heard he was there, and she came running out of the house. She came running out of the house to meet Eli. She took the initiative. So there they were, the two of them standing face to face in the front yard, and the whole town was watching. And it was the widow who reached out and grabbed hold of Eli's hands, and in a soft voice, she said, Eli, I've known you your whole life. I remember the night you were born. I have always thought the world of you, and I still do. Listen to me, Eli. I know this is an accident. You didn't do this on purpose. This wasn't your fault. And then she just hugged him. I mean, for the longest time, she just stood there holding him and hugging him. And with that simple hug, immediately the atmosphere changed. I mean, with that simple hug, this lady not only brought healing to the heart of Eli, she brought healing to the heart of that whole town. And, and, I mean, if the widow could forgive Eli, why couldn't everybody else? And suddenly an accident that, that threatened to split, split that whole community in two, suddenly that it was all healed with this simple display of grace. Now, I think we see something similar happening here in Acts chapter 21. When you get to this point in the book of Acts, it's pretty clear the Apostle Paul needs a hug. I mean, he's got lots of enemies. That's why all the way through the first 14 verses of Acts chapter 21, you see the friends of Paul. They're constantly pleading with him, don't go. 
Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Not now. The timing's not good. The atmosphere there is so tense and hostile. It's not wise to go there. You see, Paul wants to come to the city of Jerusalem because he's trying to bring an offering. For the past many months, he's been collecting an offering from all the churches in Europe and Asia, and he wants to bring it back to the people in, in Jerusalem because they're going through some really tough times. They need this kind of support. But there's a lot of people in the city of Jerusalem that are not happy about the Paul coming in and making a visit. Because right now he's one of the most controversial figures in all the Jewish world. And all Jews seem to have some kind of opinion about him. And there are all kinds of myths and misunderstandings flying around about Paul and his ministry. And then you add to the fact that he's coming back to Jerusalem at the time of one of the major Jewish holidays, the, the Feast of Pentecost. When you've got an extra 300,000 Jewish people crowding into the, the city of Jerusalem, I mean, the atmosphere there is volatile. All it takes is one spark or one little bit of controversy. Suddenly you could have a major riot on your hands where not only Paul gets hurt, but a lot of his friends can end up getting hurt too. So there's a lot of people in Jerusalem not real happy about this visit from Paul. But here's the other thing that's got them upset. The Apostle Paul is not coming back to Jerusalem alone. He's bringing eight of his Gentile friends. Bringing all these Gentiles to a Jewish feast. There's many Jewish people who are not pleased about this. So at this particular moment in time, Paul's not the most popular guy. And it's at this moment in time when Paul needs a friend, somebody who is willing to stand at his side. And that friend turns out to be this man that we read about here in verse 16, a man by the name of Nason. Now you're thinking to yourself, Nason, I don't think I've ever heard of that guy before. You know, we're all familiar with the Apostle Paul. He's the guy who took all these missionary trips. In fact, in Acts chapter 21, he's now coming to the end of his third missionary journey. And we know about Paul because he wrote most of the books of the New Testament. And we know about Paul because we've all heard about that dramatic encounter that he had with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Yeah, we're familiar with Paul. And the same thing would be true if I mentioned Peter. We kind of nod our heads. Yeah, that's the fisherman that Jesus called and said, be one of my disciples. And he did. He answered the call. He's the guy that one day tried to walk in the water, and he did for a little bit, and then he started to sing. He's the guy, Acts chapter 2, that preaches the message, and the church gets started, and 3,000 people respond to the invitation. We all know about Peter, and we'd probably get the same kind of reaction if I were to mention the names James and John and John the Baptist, but mention the name of this guy, Nason, <laughs> and we're thinking, I I'm not sure who that is, and why would the Bible even be talking about him? Well, it's here in verse 16, I think we're being reminded of something really important. It's the same lesson that the Bible will teach in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when the Bible describes the church as the body of Christ. And though the church is one body, yet this body has many different parts. It has many different members, each member with its own particular function. You know, it's kind of like a baseball team. Wouldn't you think it's strange if you heard the pitcher start to complain about the catcher? Hey, look at that guy. Look at the way he's dressed. Doesn't he look funny? I mean, look at his uniform. Look at all the equipment he's got on. There's nobody else out here in the baseball diamond that's outfitted the way he is. The guy looks like a clown. Who put that clown on our team? Or what if the outfielders began to complain about the shortstop? Why doesn't that guy have to chase after fly balls like we do? And have you ever seen that guy when he stands at the plate? You, you ever seen the way he tries to hit? He's all the time trying to bunt or choking up on the bat. He never stands at the plate like a man, swinging away, trying to hit home runs. The guy's nothing but a wimp. Why is that wimp playing on our team? Well, what kind of a baseball team would you have if, if everybody had the same kind of glove and the same kind of bat and everybody tried to play their position, whether infield or outfield, in exactly the same kind of way? You're not going to have a winning season. In order to be effective in the game of baseball, you could have nine different players, each one of them with their special set of skills for their particular position, and all nine of them working together as a team. Because when you've got that kind of chemistry, man, you've got a chance to win. 
So it is in the church. Yeah, we need our apostles, Peter and Paul. But we also need our nascents. So who is this guy? Well, it's the only time he's mentioned in the Bible. And in the original Greek language, the Bible only uses eight words to describe this man. Eight words to tell us who he is. But I think those eight words say a lot. Take a look at this. Acts chapter 21. I want to begin with verse 15. Just to get us a little context. It says, after this we, who are the we? Well, it's Paul and eight of his Gentile friends. Like we just said, he's coming to the end of his third missionary journey. New churches have been planted all over the land of Greece and all over the land of Turkey. And all kinds of letters have already been written and sent to these new believers in the new churches to help strengthen and encourage them. Letters like Galatians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Corinthians. And Paul's been going around to all these new believers in these new churches to collect an offering on behalf of the people there in the church of Jerusalem because there's been a famine in the land of Israel and the people in Jerusalem are taking it on the chin and they desperately need this money just to be able to stand, stay on their feet. So here's Paul bringing that offering back, but when he comes back, he brings eight Gentiles along with him from these different new churches. One of the reasons they're coming along is to help guard the money. This is a lot of money they've collected together, and they want to make sure there's no hanky-panky, nothing fishy, that the offering gets delivered to the right people in the right way. But Paul's also bringing along these eight Gentile friends because he wants to introduce them to his friends back in the church of Jerusalem. And he wants the people in the church of Jerusalem to see how the gospel really is spreading all over the world. So when you get to verse 15, they've left Europe, left Asia. They've now made it back to the land of Israel. And they're now in that part of Israel that we know as Caesarea, the city of Caesarea. And Caesarea is about 65 miles away from Jerusalem. So they're ready for the very last part of the journey. And it's late spring, early summer. That's the time for the Feast of Pentecost. And this is about 25 years after Acts chapter 2. That day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached and the church got started. Now Acts 21, it's 25 years later. We're about the year 57 A.D. So it says, after this we, Paul and his eight Gentile friends, we started for the last part of the journey. We're going to reach our destination. We started on our way up to Jerusalem, and that's a perfect description. That 65-mile journey from Caesarea to Jerusalem, it's all uphill. So if they're using horses and mules, it'll take them about two days. But if they're walking... It's going to be a good three, four-day trip because it's a long, hard climb. But notice they're not coming alone. Verse 16, it says, Some of the disciples from the church there in Caesarea decided to come along with us. So now you've got Paul and his eight Gentile friends, and now these people from Caesarea. So we're probably talking anywhere from 20 to 30 people. Got a caravan. And they're coming at the time when they're all, 300,000 other Jews are coming from different parts of the world to come to Jerusalem too. And everybody's looking for a place to stay. Well, where are you going to find a place for 30 people? Well, the believers in the church of Caesarea have already made the arrangements. They know about this man who lives and works down there in Jerusalem. A guy by the name of Nason. He's got a home big enough to hold all 30 of them. So they've already set everything up. That's why the Apostle Paul says here, some of the disciples from the church in Caesarea accompanied us, and they brought us to a specific place. They've made the arrangements. They brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay, meaning they're going to be staying there for the next seven, eight days. Can you imagine, from Nason's point of view, suddenly you've got 30 extra people camping out in your house, some of whom are total strangers, people you've never met before? That's a lot of mouths to feed. That's a lot of food to prepare. But he does it willingly. He does it voluntarily. This guy, Nason, must be a very generous man, and he is. But notice what else we read about him. It says he was a man from Cyprus. Cyprus is an island out in the Mediterranean Sea, same place the Barnabas came from. 
So this is telling us that Nason was a Jewish man who was born on Gentile soil, meaning that when he grew up, he learned how to speak Greek as well as Aramaic. But being in a Gentile environment, he kind of has a heart for those Gentile people, too. But he spends most of his life living and working in the city of Jerusalem. How do we know that? Look at the next phrase. And it says he's one of the early disciples. In the Greek, it can literally be translated a disciple from the very beginning. That can mean one of two things. Either Nason was a part of those crowds who were following Jesus, listening to him teach, watch him perform the miracles. So Nason was probably a part of that group that we read about in Acts chapter 1, the 120 who'd gathered in the upper room praying for and awaiting the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Or it could mean that Nason was a part of that group in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached and 3,000 responded to the invitation. And Nason is one of those who responded. So he became a charter member of the very first church. But here's the key thing. When the Bible says here, he's one of the early disciples. You can also translate this, a disciple of long standing. Meaning he not only became a follower of Jesus on that first day, but also now, 25 years later, he's still following Jesus. He's still actively serving the Lord and doing so with great courage. I mean, keep this setting in mind. Rumors flying around about the Apostle Paul, and many of the rumors are not true. But boy, it's got everybody in the city of Jerusalem all stirred up so that when Paul gets to Jerusalem, his enemies are waiting to ambush him. That's why those first 14 verses of Acts chapter 21, you see, as Paul leaves Europe and he leaves Asia and he's working his way back to the land of Israel, every place he stops, the Holy Spirit keeps warning him through his friends, through prophets like Agabus. The Holy Spirit keeps warning Paul, yeah, it's God's will that you go to Jerusalem, but you need to understand what's going to happen when you get there. There's going to be riots. There's going to be conspiracies to assassinate, all kinds of trouble. Paul, you are about to walk into a hornet's nest. That also means when he finally gets to Jerusalem and this man, Nason, opens the door to his home to invite Paul and all his Gentile friends to stay with him, here is Nason saying to everybody in the city of Jerusalem, I stand with Paul. I'm on this man's team. Here he is inviting trouble into his own life because now the people who wanted to attack Paul may now want to attack Nason as well. And yet Nason opens the door to his home. Just a simple display of grace. But with that simple act, he's showing this solidarity, this support for the Apostle Paul that must have been an enormous boost to his morale. Did you know that research has been done that shows that over a five-year period of time, your life will take on the look and take on the character of the people who are closest to you, the people that you have surrounded yourself with? So think about this. Who are your five closest friends? Who are the five people that you spend the most time with? And what kind of impact and effect are those people having upon your life? Are they the kind of people who every day will encourage you to be more like Jesus? Or are they the kind of people who encourage you to draw away from the Lord? You see, I don't think it was an accident that God brought Paul and his friends to the home of Nason. God knows the challenges, all the challenges that Paul's going to be facing here in the city of Jerusalem. And in order to face those challenges, he's going to need some good people around him. People who will pray with him and pray for him and encourage and support him in this difficult time. People like Nason who've been following Jesus a long time. So at the first sign of trouble, they're not going to throw in the towel. They're not going to get scared. They're not going to walk off. People who, like Nason, know from their own personal experience because of their own long walk with the Lord, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because, Lord, I know you are with me. 
So think about again, who are your five closest friends? And are they the kind of people when your world starts to fall apart, when you're going through some tough times, are these the kind of people that will encourage you to stay close to Jesus? Or are they the kind of people that will influence you to turn your back on God and walk away from him? There's an old story from the Middle East. It's a story about a prince and how this prince had a dream. He wanted his people to live together in harmony. He wanted to create a better community in which his people could live. So one day he gathers all the people of his kingdom and he shares the dream and he tells them about his idea and he says, here's how we can make it work. To establish this kind of unity, we need to make a covenant. We need to make a commitment to each other. So he challenged his people to go back home and each one of them get a bottle of their finest wine. And on a certain day, they'll all gather in the center of town and each one would pour their wine into this giant bowl. And that would symbolize how everybody is committing themselves to making, giving their very best to making this new community work. It was a great idea, and at first everybody agreed. But over the next couple days, people began to have second thoughts. One man thought to himself, man, if I bring my finest wine, I pour it in with everybody else's wine, what good is that going to do? I mean, all the distinctive character and flavor of my particular wine is going to get lost and swallowed up in everybody else's wine. Uh-uh, I'm not doing this. I'm going to take that expensive wine, I'm going to pour it in a different container, and then I'm going to fill my bottle with water. Nobody will know the difference. And that way I won't be wasting my precious treasure. So the day came to make the covenant, and everybody gathered in the center of town. And one by one, they took their bottles and poured it into the giant bowl. And then the prince encouraged everybody to grab a cup and together, let's just take a dip of this giant bowl, and, and let's take a drink and celebrate what we have done here today. And as everybody began to drink, they were shocked. There was no wine in the bowl. There was nothing but water. Every person had done what that one man had done. And that day the prince knew, my dream will never come true. Did you know that Jesus has a dream? A dream of building a new community, a place where people actually live together in love, a place where every need, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual, is always attended to a place where people work together in cooperation, a place where people utilize the gifts, talents, resources that God has given to them, and they utilize those resources in the best way possible so they can help others be more like Jesus. And Jesus has a name for this new community. He calls it the church. Well, here, Acts chapter 21, verse 16, here's a man who takes that dream seriously, a man named Nason, a man committed to giving his very best. A man who not only opened the door to his home, he opened the door to everything in his home so that both Jew and Gentile could stay there and both Jew and Gentile could live together in harmony and so that people like the Apostle Paul could finish their mission for Jesus and finish it well. So think about it. What has God given to you? And what has God given to me? And are we utilizing those resources in such a way that we are actually helping others to be more like Jesus? Let me finish with this. One Sunday morning, a little girl was sitting in church with her mom, and she watched as one of the elders stood next to the communion table. He was going to help the congregation get ready for the time of the Lord's Supper. So the elder stood up front, and he read scripture, and he started to pray. And the little girl noticed that as the elder prayed, he began to open up his hands. And then he began to spread out his arms. As the elder prayed, God used this time of communion to bless us, and God... Bless us all. Well, the little girl saw it differently. As the elder was praying, she nudged her mother and she whispered, Mommy, Mommy, look at that man. Look at how he's praying. 
He's trying to look like Jesus. He's trying to look like Jesus on the cross. That's not a bad thing to say about a Christian, is it? Trying to look like Jesus on the cross. I mean, didn't Jesus himself said, unless you pick up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. That's what we see here in Acts 21, 16. A man by the name of Nason. Only time he's ever mentioned in the Bible. And in the original Greek, the Bible only uses eight words to describe him. But in those eight words, the Bible's telling a story. And it's not just a story about Nason. It's a story about Jesus. How this man, Nason, from the very beginning of his journey to the very end of his journey, every day he was doing everything he could to look like Jesus and act like Jesus. So this morning when we eat the bread and we drink the cup and we remember how Jesus gave his best for us, let us also consider how God might want to use your life, how he might want to use my life to tell a story too, to tell others a story about Jesus. Let's pray. God, there's no one like you. It's just what we've been singing about here today. Your grace is amazing. We are so grateful that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. We are so grateful that your love for us never fails. And God, we're thankful to have a moment like this where we can just worship you and praise you and thank you for our salvation. God, here's our prayer. From this moment on, may Jesus be glorified as our Lord and Savior. May Jesus be glorified in the lives we live for him. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.